For most of my life, I've heard a continued debate about the ethics of the use of the atomic bomb America dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. On the one hand, it's one of the greatest atrocities ever committed against a civilian population in the history of warfare. On the other, a prolonged invasion of Japan could have cost a million more human lives than were lost in those attacks had Japan not surrendered when they did. So goes the argument anyway. It's always fascinated me that, though the threat has been made many times, nobody has deployed a nuclear weapon since then. The devastation caused by those two bombs that ended World War II was so unbelievable that we've pretty much agreed as a global society that none of us would survive a third world war should it take place. Did we finally realize the dream of creating a weapon so vile that it served as an effective deterrent against ever launching war on that scale again? Or did we create a nightmarish new reality where one man had the power to effectively end the world with the push of a button? I'm not here to debate that argument on either side, actually. It seems a little crass of me to imply from my unfathomably privileged position in 21st century America that the men, women, and children immolated in atomic hellfire made a righteous sacrifice in the name of continued civilization, or that some cosmic calculus can justify loss of life on that scale or in that fashion. It doesn't actually even have anything to do with today's film. I only bring it up because the atomic bomb so vastly overshadows the end of the war that we forget a lot of the other tragedies that happened on the path to nuclear holocaust. If someone says the words bomb and Japan in the same sentence, I promise even if you know the complete history of the conflict, your mind does not jump to the firebombing of Kobe. In the grand discourse of whether or not we should have dropped the atomic bomb, it's easy to forget that we had already reduced entire cities and their surrounding rural communities to ashes, and doomed countless civilians to death by abject poverty and starvation. In the battle for bandwidth and a sea of unimaginable tragedies that we must always remember to never forget, this ostensibly family-friendly animated film is an unlikely hero. It's the story of two children, orphaned by war and clinging to each other for survival. Intimate, visceral, dreamlike, and at times even playful, this movie, better than some of its higher budgeted and more epic in scope counterparts, fights against the cruel ignorance and casual indifference of our societal memory because something more grandly horrible and fabulously tragic captured our attention instead. And all of this, the atom bombs, the fire bombs, the burned alive mothers, the malnourished babies, and the broken bodies of homeless children littering train stations, all of it was done in the name of breaking the fight out of an enemy nation so we wouldn't have to invade them. I hope it was worth it, and the cosmic calculus has our accounts in the black, because that's what happened whether it was worth it or not. And no articulate debate, poignant argument, or erudite counterpoint can change it. They say it's impossible to make an anti-war film, and by they I mean people who have not yet seen Asao Takahata's 1988 heartbreaking masterpiece, Grave of the Fireflies. Call it in. It's danger close. Welcome everyone to episode five of Danger Close. My name is Dan and I'm here with my co-hosts. Katie. And I am Liam. 
And today we're here to talk about a 1988 animated film about World War II, Grave of the Fireflies. And Katie's here to tell us all about it. So, Grave of the Fireflies was directed by Isao Takahata, who worked with Studio Ghibli and then did a couple of other very well-known films. Uh, it is set during the final months of the Second World War and tells the story of four-year-old Setsuko and 14-year-old Seita, a sister and brother who are trying to survive on the fringes of society after their home in Kobe is firebombed. While they initially have a place to stay with their aunt and her family, it isn't long before she drives them away and the two resort to living in an abandoned bomb shelter and have to take some desperate measures to stay alive. The film is based on a semi-autobiographical short story by Akiyuki Nosaka, which I believe can be found in the children's book The Whale That Fell in Love with the Submarine, but I had a hard time confirming that, as my copy hasn't been delivered yet. The film wasn't released in the U.S. until 1998 and didn't see an actual theatrical run until 2018, but Western audiences loved it as much as the Japanese market, with Roger Ebert giving it a glowing review, calling it one of the best and most powerful war films he'd ever seen. Its deeply dramatic and emotional themes helped many Western audiences and critics see that anime was a fully viable storytelling medium, as opposed to being limited to comedy or children's stories, which for the most part in the 90s is what it was considered. It was important to me to include this film in our first five episodes because I wanted to make sure that we are covering not just the standard war films that portray combat and its participants, but also films that show the true cost of war for more than just the soldiers. Grave of the Fireflies is an eloquent and devastatingly precise illustration of what war is like for those who aren't fighting, but are still intrinsically involved in the conflict. The most vulnerable in our societies always face the greatest cost in desperate situations, and this film pulls no punches when it shows the viewers those costs. This one deeply affected me, and I cried at least twice before it was over, and it is known to be one of the saddest movies out there. So I have to ask... How many times did you guys cry while you were watching this one? Spill the beans. Well, I got to tell you, my uh, my uh, heart is a cold, dead thing. So zero for me, but <gasps> oh, I know. <laughs> La gasp. So the like the only movie that I reliably cry at is uh, "It's a Wonderful Life." Oh man, me too. But we're not here to talk about It's a Wonderful Life. So I will say that I did not cry during this movie. uh, But that's not to say that I wasn't feeling it. So that's that's where I'll leave that. I will get into more of that later. (laughs) But that is where where I'll leave that for now. Dan? So same for me, actually. But I think it's mostly due to hype. Like... I think everyone was telling me how this is like the saddest movie on earth. I don't know. I was having a sad week with my family already. So maybe I was a little numb emotionally, but I was like, okay, all right, let's get, I'm just going to sit down and watch this. My, uh, my girlfriend Tella watched it with me. So we watched it at the same time in, in separate houses. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it didn't, it didn't bring me to tears, even though it was obviously really sad, but I was not a great date night movie, tell yeah, or otherwise. I warned her, but you know, she likes to keep up with the shows. And so she likes to usually watch the film when I'm watching it to prepare. So, you know, I, I and gave did her, she cry? I don't think so. Well, but, write in and let us know. Cause yeah, I'm interested. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. Te- text her real fast and be like, Hey, yeah. how much did you cry at this? Right. <laughs> just the whole time or just a little bit. And also, by the way, just know that like 
no pressure or anything. I'm not going to be like your, your to be mother-in-law being like, when are you going to get married? But like, if you do get married, uh, she is not going to insist on watching all of these with you to keep up. She's just going to be like, Oh, it's a danger close night. All right. I'm going to go to bed. (laughs) Probably, probably true. I'll I'll take your word for it. Eventually. um, That's going to be part of the vows. Like if you guys do get married, you're going to be, she's going to be like, I am not watching all of your danger close movies. I, I can, I can tell you that I'm done starting or joining any new podcast. Like if I add kids to this equation, I know I'm definitely maxed out. So <laughs> yes. I'm just going to put all my eggs into this basket and uh, hopefully the project continues any, to go well. Like, would you still want kids after watching this movie? Cause I mean, like this is like the, uh, I, I had a friend who is now a big dog lover But when we were in college together, he was like, man, why would you get a dog? That's just like buying yourself a tragedy in eight years. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like this movie kind of puts kids in that context where it's like, why? They're just going to starve to death. Like, (laughs) (laughs) well, man, so that's a. That's an interesting question because it actually brings up a lot of points. On, on a personal note, I've wanted kids my whole life and I'm like disappointed that I'm approaching 38 and so far my life just has not worked out in a way that I've had kids yet. But I will tell you that 2020 and 2021 during the pandemic was probably the first time of my like later adult life where I've been like relieved that I did not have children. I was like, oh, okay, no problem. I, I can I can skip this year on having kids. So I've got three that. and I've been in the house with them since March <laughs> of last year. How's that going? Liam's face, you guys. Liam's face. It's just super well. It's <laughs> everything's great. <laughs> you know, apropos of nothing, I just saw on my YouTube feed the uh the film footage of that POW from like nine back in like the fifties or whatever, who was blinking torture. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that what yeah, you're doing I, right now? I don't know why that came to mind, but everything's <laughs> fine. <laughs> um, oh God. But secondarily, I think that um, to be serious for a second, because obviously that's my role. <laughs> when when Liam mentioned, um, you know, the fact that we're all going to die anyways and we're all going to starve or we're all going to get bombed, I think that brings up something that I know we'll talk about more in this episode, which is as Americans, we've been involved in several – in a couple of war wars and several conflicts like on the other side of the world. But unlike a lot of these other countries, Japan, Germany, England, we have not gone through – major sustained bombings of our cities and our civilian populations. Um, of course, 9-11 happened and that was tragic. And, you know, we we know what it feels like to sort of unify behind an attack like that and Pearl Harbor happened. So we have some parallels, but what I think is really um, the the general setting of this film, which is what it's like to just try and live a regular life as a couple of kids with just all this crazy shit going on around you and literally fire raining from the sky. Like none of us really have that perspective. And I think that's a very unique thing to not just Americans, obviously Switzerland and plenty of other places haven't been firebombed. But I think that's something I constantly think about when I see depictions or read about civilian populations that are being 
you know, decimated and terrified by this death that's raining down from the skies, like around their own homes and their workplaces and their city streets. That's just such a crazy concept that I, I don't have a reference for. And I'm constantly reminded of that when I see things like this. I agree. And I'm only kind of, uh, I'm only kind of being a snarky asshole about this, but what we do to other countries with bombs is what we do to our country with economics. I think not being able to relate with the plight of these children uh, is like, and and not, not fighting with you or arguing with you, but just like another side of it is that like, we're three white people from like fairly stable backgrounds and whatnot that, you know, there are, there are plenty of kids in our country today that are living exactly like the two kids in this movie, um, without the excuse of being firebombed by a foreign power. Um, so I don't think that that, and I don't want this episode to just turn into like Liam's soapbox, but like the, what they went through is, is tragic. But I also, um, I think that it's, it's, it is impossible for me to wrap my mind around, but there are also people that are going through things not dissimilar right now um, that aren't going to get a movie made about them. You know what I mean? I think that's part of why he, why uh, Isa Takahata, the director, was so set on making this movie. I mean, he would have been 11 when this movie is taking place because he was 1934, I think. Um. And when he read the short story, he became very adamant, like, I need to do this movie. I need to make this movie. And when during a lot of interviews, he talked about how, like, you know, this isn't just uh, something that takes place during war. This is something that children go through. And I'll tell you, I'm sure there are children who go through this in Japan right now, not just there are children all over the world who go through this right now. It's just they aren't facing the additional fears of having bombs dropped on their heads. <laughs> So, but he didn't just mean this to be a commentary on World War II. He very much meant this to be a commentary on children going through a demanding and completely unacceptable circumstances and trying to survive. And to go back to the point of you guys didn't cry, and, and Dan, you talking about how, like, it wasn't as sad as you thought it was. Like, it is surprising how many moments of joy this film has in it. And for me, that's what made it more um, realistic because kids are uh, much better than grownups at just like, what else? I got stuff. I got to keep going. I'm just going to do this. And there are so many moments with Seita and Satsuko where they're just having fun together. Like when Seita is playing the piano for her, when they go out on the beach and go swimming. And there's all these moments where these children are living in their own world. And that felt so realistic, and it then makes it all the more poignant when the eventuality happens. Because, I mean, this movie starts out with Seita dying. It's very clear from the moment, from moment one, this is going to end bad. Yeah, I was like, dude, spoiler alert. 
Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, this is when I die. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> Movie's <laughs> over. Happy times from the beginning seconds here. Yeah, and I thought that's a really bold choice to make. That it's like, we're just going to let y'all in on the secret now. This isn't a surprise. This is this is the story we're telling. Is the story of these kids' last days, which makes you think about it. I think for me, at least when I'm watching it, I think about it differently and it hits in a different way than if you go into this thinking that like you're going to get a happy ending. A happy ending is possible. Like, no, nope. So I actually just to um, let the listener in on a little bit of the mechanics here, um, we were going to record this last week. But just scheduling and whatnot, it didn't didn't work out. So uh, I was intending to watch the movie again because I'd watched it for last week, and then I was going to like go back and watch it again. Uh, and I didn't get I didn't get all the way through. Like I I started to watch it and then I stopped because I was like, I don't need to do that again. Uh, but. It was interesting to me that I think it was hitting me harder the second time because the beginning is pretty messed up when you watch it after seeing the ending. So not to like go out of order too much, but it's like, dude, did you just taste her ashes? And then it's just like, she like, picks up the the candy tin of the the fruit drops and like hugs it and i'm like oh my my coffin is i love my coffin so much let's have some candy from my coffin and i'm just like what is happening right now like the knowledge that i had watching the beginning after watching the movie made the beginning a lot darker so i didn't have time to watch it a second time but i did turn it on and watch the beginning watch the end again wanted to like listen to some music and stuff and um I'll have to just come through as as the idiot on this one and admit that um, I had a completely different viewing of the beginning than you. And that's because until I was doing research, opened up Wikipedia and reread the plot. And then the plot is like, you know, it's like a Wikipedia plot description. It's very dry. And it's just like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Sato walks up to his own dead body and describes his death. And it's his spirit. September 21st, 1945. That was the night I died. And I was like, oh, shit, they were spirits at the beginning. Like, I watched the beginning of the movie the first time, and I don't know why, because I was paying attention and I was, like, fully focused. Didn't even realize he was a spirit. I just thought he was looking at the body of someone else. And I, like, when they get on the train, I was totally watching it as their characters. I just thought the timeline was jumpy. And same thing with at the end, I didn't realize it was their spirits. So I feel like a moron, but <laughs> I had to go back later to realize like, oh, these are their spirits um, at the beginning. And then they're looking at like a modern Kobe at the end, et cetera, et cetera. So I was way thrown off by that and definitely a little bit confused. So Yeah, it doesn't really uh, it it didn't make as much sense to me the first time, which I think has to be on purpose that they want that kind of ambiguity or maybe um, it, it's, I feel like it's more ambiguous possibly for a Western audience. I don't know if um, because in Japan, like at least 50% of the movies they make are animated. Like they're it, it's uh, animation is 
a much bigger factory over there than it is over here. Um, and so I don't know if they're just like visual cues or if there is a method to storytelling in anime that would clue people into that more, but it's, well, we do have our, our resident, uh, weeb here. Uh, I am an otaku, okay? When I was growing up, that's what we called ourselves was otaku, this weeb nonsense. I don't even know what a weeb is, so I'm already like two new words behind here. It's an anime fan. There are two different words. Otaku was something that was in like the late late 80s, early 90s until like mid-2000s, I think weeb took over. But yeah, I was was interested. Did you guys watch, have you guys watched a lot of anime? How much experience have you had with it before this movie? I personally, I've watched the like, top five percent maybe of famous things and that's it like you know i've seen akira you've like watched this and akira right basically i mean i i've watched yeah a total of uh maybe ghost in the shell i actually haven't seen that one yet it's on my list i definitely want to see it um yeah so i've seen just a couple of sporadic things here and there and that's all animation as a blade runner man you should watch ghost in the shell i I have heard this yes (laughs) once or twice so Um, i i grew up watching anime I will say that I did. I, I hang on, I Katie. Watch, Liam has something to say right now. I yes, do have something to say. Go for it, well, Liam. I, mean, I want to answer your question. Just I don't want to just and like. I, hear it. I, I don't want to just like ignore your question. That would be rude. Um, I I'm not talking for me. I'm answering <laughs> your question. Oh, Liam. I hate the, the sound truth. of my voice. <laughs> So, did you watch? How, how much have you watched? Let's so, I haven't watched. I'm I'm like in the middle. I'm I'm kind of an anime snob, where I'm very particular about my anime. Not saying I have the best taste in anime, but rather that like, there's a lot of anime that I'm just like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. I I have too I have too little time on this earth to like spend, uh, to to expend on learning the entire history of Dragon Ball. Uh, and, and to, uh, there are too, there's too much other media for me to consume that, to fill myself up with Dragon Ball. Um, but I have watched some like more mainstream stuff and I've seen some pretty obscure shit. My favorite is Trigun. Trigun is great. Trigun is great. I love, uh, Gundam Wing is my preferred Gundam. Okay. Having not seen any, any other, other Gundam, <laughs> but I know that Gundam Wing is the best. That's all I need to know. Uh, and nobody will ever convince me otherwise. I've seen Spriggan. I don't know if you've seen Spriggan. It's I haven't, but I know about it. My my buddy and I were at a, a comic shop that had like a rack of anime movies. And he picks it up. And on the back, it has like a critic's quote on it that's like, the most kick-ass action anime ever. And he looks at me and he just goes, dude, that's a bold statement. That is a bold We statement. should put it to the test. And we watched <laughs> it and we were like, I don't know if it's the most kick-ass, but like, I'm not going to fight him on it. Like, it was pretty good. Uh, and of course, I've seen Akira, uh, Princess Mononoke, things like that. Right. I've, Other Studio I've, Ghibli. I've seen, I know I've seen Howl's Moving Castle, but I might have been drunk and I don't really remember anything about it. So like... <laughs> Sometimes that happens, you know. Interesting. Um, That's a trip because that means that while Katie is the obvious queen nerd of anime, like on on a scale of us three, she's the ten. Yeah. Um, 
I didn't, haven't seen, except for Akira, I haven't seen any of the shit you just mentioned, Liam, with the exception that my girlfriend's a huge Miyazaki fan. So I've I've definitely, like Princess Mononoke is like in her top five films ever, period. So I've definitely watched, we were just doing the count the other day talking about this. And so I've seen at least six or seven, including How's Moving Castle and Totoro and stuff. So um, Ghibli is one of the best. S- still haven't seen Totoro. Totoro's great. It's really fun. Yeah, I don't know. And I look at the picture on the cover and it's that giant thing. That the cat bus. Looks, yeah, it looks like if a if a, a teddy bear were a gumdrop. And I just... <laughs> oh, I'm the like, Totoro. It, yeah, it doesn't speak to me. So um, the funny thing is, is that this movie premiered in Japan as a double feature with my neighbor Totoro. That what I was reading, and you can probably expand more on this, but the little bit that I that I dug up on it, because I like to come to these episodes fresh and uninformed. Uh, I I was reading that they the only way he could get funding for Totoro was by doing a a package deal with this movie. Was something that I read on IMDb. Can you give us some more information, like uh, confirm or refute? So that was the very beginning of Studio Ghibli. And um, so for those who don't know, Hayao Miyazaki is the mastermind behind Studio Ghibli. And generally, when you think of Studio Ghibli, you are thinking of Miyazaki's films. And probably the most well-known one, I would say, is either My Neighbor Totoro or Spirited Away. That one, I think, didn't – I don't know if it won, but it was up for an Oscar. It was nominated. I don't – it might have won. I don't think it won. I think I don't think it did. It was – what – I can't remember what came out that year, but yeah, it was some up there. Disney thing. That's they always win, um, almost anyway. But so I think there was a certain aspect of that as they were trying to get this studio off the ground and trying to make it work. And so they kind of tried to do a double threat of releasing a because they consider both of these children's movies. It wasn't generally considered that. You know, I was thinking about showing my kids this movie just so they learn how to get along together. So here's the thing is if you don't watch a lot of anime, this is a movie that is steeped in anime cultural traditions. Anime has been a thing since the 60s in Japan and the 50s. And it was very much inspired by Disney um, and has now grown into its, its own thing. And Grave of the Fireflies is a beautiful examination of Japanese culture, um, style, and a way of thinking. And it definitely clashes with Western audience thinking. Like, since I've been watching it for so long, there are certain things that I can immediately pick out as, oh, that means this, this means, you know, whatever. And like the ghost moment in the beginning was immediately obvious to me because I'm very used to seeing uh Ghosts interacting, that is a very common thing in Japanese uh, media and folklore. For the record, just looked it up. It did win Best uh, Animated Feature. Oh, that's wonderful. In 2003. I can barely believe it because Disney has such a monopoly. So one of the best things about it is that I do think as, as someone who watches a lot of anime that this can really appeal to Western folks and it doesn't require nearly as much translation as something like, say, Excel Saga for those who do watch anime. That is like something that is steeped upon within and fully engaged in all these Japanese tropes. So this one really tries to pull in all audiences and doesn't do a lot of the 
more well-known anime tropes, but it nobody is very... turns into like a weird cat-faced person randomly no. when they're being mischievous. <laughs> no, and the interesting thing about it is that originally the author Nosaka had turned down a live-action film version of his story because he didn't feel that they could capture. Uh, the desolate landscape, I believe is how he put it. And he was very intrigued when Takahata came to him and was like, let's make this into an animated film because we can do a lot with animation that we can't do in live action. And for he also ch- felt for that, way cheaper too. And he also felt that child actors probably couldn't pull this off. Well, and also he probably just knew he couldn't get Kubrick. <laughs> Cause that's Maybe. the kind of thing that Kubrick would have just feasted on. Yeah, right. Yes. It's like, probably- I'm sorry, you want you need it to be desolate and in space and on fire? How many people die? I'm 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 on it. Can we just film this in London? Because I really want to sleep at home tonight. <laughs> yes, exactly. We'll make it work. Don't worry about it. We'll um, bring in the trees and then we'll set them on fire. <laughs> and I'll have a name for every tree. So the the fact that he was so on board with this and then proceeded to work pretty closely with Takahata to bring this thing to life to the point where it is, again, I haven't had a chance to read the story yet. It is supposed to be a very like almost one-to-one translation of the story. And one of the things I noticed when I was reading is that Western audiences, there's a, there's a scene where Seita, Seita's aunt, um, is haranguing them about not contributing and you're not giving anything and is stealing from them by taking those kimonos and then selling them and then, okay, well, I'm just going to keep the majority of this rice I got and you can have this little bag. That's fine. Can we just know her as the evil bitch for the rest of the episode? Like, because she's pretty rotten. She is. But in Japanese culture, that is a thing. Like, older women being... uh, I don't know, miserly almost, that there's a a certain trope of women being like that in Japan, especially in these kinds of things. And it's more looked at as she is looking out for her family. And Yeah, I was going to say, like, does a Japanese audience uh, think she's an evil bitch or is that just a Western thing? I would say it's more nuanced in Japan than it would be here because they would see it as more she is – she is valuing, and again, I'm not Japanese, and I'm not trying to speak for them. This is my interpretation as someone who's watched a shit ton of anime over the years. You're you're weeb splaining to us. I'm uh, yes, I hate that term though. <laughs> <laughs> so she is seen more as like being stingy, and but understandably so because she's dealing with trying to feed a family and not knowing where her resources are coming from and all of that. And when Seita decides to leave and is just like, fuck this noise, I'm done. I'm taking my sister and we'll figure it out ourselves. For a lot of Western audiences, that is viewed as a bad choice. But for Japanese audiences, it was considered like, well, he has a lot of pride and, you know, determination and those are good qualities to have and so it's seen very much as like this is the only choice otherwise he would have been shamed for staying like it's taking on shame to continually suffer that kind of abuse when it's not warranted so that's that's interesting because later on in the movie when they like are starving and have rickets or whatever it is that they've got going on with them uh and they're talking to that farmer that that they were trading with 
says, you know, you should really just go back and make good with your aunt. Cause like, you're going to die. It's your best bet. And I can't help. Like you had a pretty sweet gig. She's a good lady. And I'm like, was she though? Was she that good? She keeps them alive. Right. She wouldn't have let them die of starvation. That's which they did. I feel like <laughs> spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> spoiler alert. They die. It's horribly. Can you, spoil, can you spoil the beginning of a movie? If it's uh, if it's not uh, Avengers, for some people. If it's not Infinity War, can you spoil the beginning of a movie? Depends on how obsessive anyway. you are. Um, the. But yeah, so like I feel like the movie judges him pretty harshly, but I th- I assume that's um I guess the character judging himself harshly. I don't know. It's from the perspective of the kid, he is holding on to his pride and his honor, and the guy is telling him to like just take the L and let go of let go of your honor and your pride because you're going to die if you keep this. And it is a, especially at that time, pride is something that was worth dying for. But is ghost, uh, is ghost kid judging live kid harshly is my question. That's, I think up to interpretation very much. So is who's judging him. And I feel like, uh, not being super familiar with Japanese culture and I've never been there, but only having read about it and read specifically about this period a little bit more. Um, I, I would have guessed that that could have gone the other way, meaning that the Japanese cultural perspective might've been that loyalty to family would have been more important than personal pride. So in reading that, I obviously believe that to them, the personal pride aspect was more important, but I was surprised because I thought it could have gone the other way too, where it's like, no, no, your mom's dead. This is your distant aunt. This is the closest family that you have. You have to like stick with family and that's important. As I'm I'm pretty sure Japanese families live multi-generationally and like take care of their elderly, et cetera. So so like I, I would have thought that would have been higher up. So it's an interesting conflict to see. Well, and he's but here's the big difference. If if it had been reversed and Setsuko had been the older one, that would have been the way it would be. Women are expected to women are not given that kind of honor. But for what it, it is crossing that line of like a young man mm, versus a man. He's a man. And a, okay. And fifteen was the age you could go to war during World War Two in Japan. And he is one year shy of it. Right. So he's, you know, considered an equivalently like a 17-year-old in our culture. Right. So this is uh, something else that I noticed on the uh, – well, I noticed it in the first one, but it, it really struck me in the subway scene in the very beginning that it was still there. And I didn't notice it the first time, but you see it throughout. And this might be – fingers crossed – God willing and the creek don't rise, as they say in North Carolina. I don't know. They say it places. <laughs> is that a thing? Uh, yeah, that it, it is a thing. Um, but th- hopefully this is like the the closest I get to like a cultural insensitivity on my part on this show. What the fuck is up with those shoes with like the two like the two by fours that like the platform <laughs> shoes. What purpose do those possibly serve that a lady's just wearing those in the subway? Those like are at first 
I, I know they're like a traditional Japanese shoe, but I'm like, they can't be comfortable. They can't be practical. Like, what do they do? I have a pair of them, actually. Oh, do they suck? Because they look like they suck. <laughs> they look comfortable to me. They, uh, no, I mean, they're like, they're no more uncomfortable than like thong sandals. It's see, those are wildly uncomfortable, but it's like thong sandals <laughs> that you have to balance on. Well, you don't really have to balance because they, they don't tip like, far what enough. If, what if slippers were ice skates? Can we make that a thing? The reason is because they don't have, pa- they didn't have paved roads. And so that keeps you out of the mud. And it's easier to get out of the mud with the two Is pegs. it? Because I felt like it was going to sink down in a weird way. Like no, you because you don't have, have as much surface area. contact. Okay. You just have those two bits that are going to get there, so it's easier to get around. But and yeah, those like are. The, it looks very like the opposite of snowshoes, where like the idea with snowshoes is to like spread it as wide as possible, but these is just like you like so. It, I don't know. It struck me it, while I was watching it. I was like, that looks like the least. If only I had a hardwood floor that I could bring with me wherever I went. Like, that's what it looks like. No, I, I, yeah, I, I could see how they would not be useful at the Battle of the Somme type of mud. But I think in terms right. of just like a wet street or a wet right. gravel road where you're just trying to like mostly stay dry, I could see them being useful for that. Yep. And they lift you off the ground. So they keep your kimono dry. Mm, that's right. the other part of it. Because kimonos were a previous to. 1900 kimonos were what everybody wore regardless of sex or gender excuse me there is a a entire generation of american early 2000s jenko wearers that are just longing for those shoes so their jenkos don't get wet (laughs) yeah i i would have used a pair of those when i was a teenager no no joke so I had a question for you anime watchers or people who are more experienced um, at specifically at, at Japanese anime in general. For one thing, the conformity in the way Japanese anime is drawn is like surprising just because when you think about Western cartoons um, and animation, it runs the gamut. I mean, sure, the, it depends on whether you're drawing a um, a human versus an animal versus a cute thing, whatever. But it seems like Western animators have kind of carte blanche on how they want to do backgrounds, whether they want to make something photorealistic or whether they want to make it more cartoony or whatever the case may be. Whereas Japanese animation seems to function on... I don't know if they're unspoken rules or if in their society they have these rules, but across the gamut, it seems like, you know, the eyes are drawn in a very specific way where like there are these like really, really big open eyes and the way the backgrounds are drawn, um, almost like watercolor also seems really, really consistent. And I was just curious about how Japanese anime got drawn this way. I, I seem to anecdotally have read a comment that the Japanese animator animators took after Disney and saw how Disney was drawing eyes and making things cute. And they kind of like ran with that, but I'm just curious to hear more about it. So I have an answer that is my answer that I'm really excited to say first so that Katie can come in and correct whatever bullshit I'm about to lay on you. Uh, mm-hmm. But to my understanding, I think anime would like the style Like, there's a dude, and I have no idea what his name is, but there was, like, a guy who started it, like, like the grandfather of Japanese animation. And he was influenced by Disney, but specifically, like, the DuckTales Scrooge McDuck comic books. The, the, 
way DuckTales is drawn uh, is, I mean, that that is kind of different from almost any other any other Disney animation as well, as far as like the eye ratios, like no ducks have eyes like that, but like they were also very popular. Like my dad grew up reading Scrooge McDuck comics when, when he was younger. Cause they were basically, it was, it was like Indiana Jones before Indiana Jones type, but like King Solomon's minds kind of adventures. If you, if you want to look for a, a possible like Western, uh, a uh, counterpoint. If you look at say MGM musicals of the 1940s, you know, it's, they, it, it was the dream factory and they had like a way of doing it that they were literally just cranking these things out. Um, and I feel like, because I know I mentioned earlier that like, I, I was being flippant when I said 50% of everything that Japan makes in media is animated, but I think it actually might be more than that. Like animation is huge over there and it's, it, it's, so big that they are constantly cranking it out to the point where I think it's just easier to stick to that kind of those norms in that format. And you're good at one thing and just keep doing that thing that looks like that. Uh, as far as just like, it's, it's cheaper, it's faster and people like it. Okay. How wrong so, was I Katie? <laughs> um, was I like, 40, you were 40% right. Awesome, I'll take it. So a little bit, a little bit right. F minus. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so. That's like passing. I'll, it's passing-esque. I'll, I'll try to keep this, I'll try to give a short summary of this info. So Japanese anime um, has been around for since the 30s or so, but it didn't really get popular until the 50s and 60s. And especially with uh Tezuka Asamo, who did something called Astro Boy, which was a huge hit in Japan. And a lot of those guys were very inspired by Disney. And it's Mickey Mouse that is the inspiration for these, not hmm. Scrooge McDuck. I like Scrooge McDuck better than Mickey Mouse. None yeah, of these guys look like Mickey Mouse. Understandable. So the big eyes thing is is more because it's not necessarily because of a specific rules or guidelines. It's because eyes are considered... To be stereotypical, the window to the soul. And in animation, they view eyes as, especially in Japan, the most expressive part of the face. And so they have these big eyes because it allows them to really express emotions with eyes as opposed to with your whole facial features because they have a more, they don't have as many layers of coloring necessarily as earlier, earlier animated films in America. But it's also that, like you guys are talking about how it, it's it feels homogenous to you, but I can tell you as someone who's watched so many anime, like, there is a huge variety of style. Like, if you watch something like Sailor Moon from the 90s, not the Crystal version, Crystal's good, but I'm going with the 90s one here, there's a, a much more, like, you have these small pointy faces with these big eyes, whereas in, like, a Miyazaki movie, you see very rounded shapes everything is very round and almost bubbly um so and now anime and i don't watch as much current stuff um has expanded to more very long thin limbs with even bigger eyes <laughs> and it is all about getting the form of expression and the watercolor look comes from traditional japanese art because they use a lot of watercolors one of the most famous japanese art pieces is those waves 
like mm-hmm. the blue waves mm-hmm. in the background. And they don't necessarily, well, it's not necessarily watercolor. It's ink paintings. They're using ink brushes and doing washes and stuff like that. So that's why you have those backgrounds. So it looks very homogenous, but it is, in fact, there are so many different gradients of style and effort. And like, for example, in this film, uh, traditionally you use black outlines to describe your characters and your scenes, whatever. In this, they use brown, and brown is more difficult to to do because it isn't as definitive. It provides a softer graduation from, like, a person's face to the background or the chair they're sitting on or whatever, but it's also a little more dreamlike and painterly, I think would be the word. So that's kind of the thing is Japanese animation is very much devolved or uh, an evolution rather of Japanese art. So what we are seeing as Westerners, I I try to remember, I don't know, have you guys ever learned another language? Uh, I've failed at learning another language. I've taken, (laughs) I think in my life, I've taken eight years of Spanish and (laughs) I, the only time I've successfully conversed with somebody in Spanish was when I was drunk on Miami beach and uh, it was like three in the morning and I was talking to somebody who only spoke Portuguese. So it helped then it did. Let me give you my answer. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't grow up here. That doesn't count. Yeah. (laughs) So when you listen to a language and you are first learning a new one, you know how you slowly start to hear more sounds. Mm hmm. Everything feels kind of slurred in the beginning, and then as you watch it or as you listen to it and get to know it, you can differentiate the syllables from each other. The diphthongs. Yes, thank you. And that is what we're talking about here, but in a visual medium where it kind of feels like it has a lot of homogeny to us because we're used to Western ideals, which have this much wider variety but generally, the big popular things in Japanese anime are all going to kind of look the same to you if you only watch a little bit of it because you are seeing the popular stuff in the same way that if you watched He-Man and She-Ra and G.I. Joe and that stuff in the 80s, it's all pretty similar mm-hmm. or Scooby-Doo and that era's cartoons. And now you see things like- Hey, Scooby-Doo never directly punched the screen. That's true. <laughs> so just slow your roll there for a second. But no, I but, get it. It's it's like how the ancient Greeks couldn't see the color blue because they didn't yeah, have a word for it. Exactly. It's that kind of thing where you don't notice it because you're just not used to it. And that's very much how anime is. Those are the early starts of anime where it was very inspired by Disney. And then they kind of develop into their own thing. And interestingly enough, Isao Takahata, who directed this film, was known as one of the more avant-garde anime directors. His film Horus, Prince of the Sun, which was made in 1968, was considered um, a huge break from anime stylings. And so he then made this movie 20 or so years later. And while it's it feels very Studio Ghibli, it's also different. It's not the same kind of styling as something like Mononoke. I actually think that's a pretty good metaphor for my role on this show is like I can get you to like 40 to 50% of the right answer where I'm like not not <laughs> nah, knock 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 not gonna 
not going to work here anymore. Anyway. And then uh, Dan and I fill in the rest of it. And then you guys are just like, yes, Liam, you're right. Thank you. And I'm like, you're I right know. about these three things. Holy shit, and... I'm good. I helped you be right. That's all I need to be here. Now, here's another question I have. And this is one of the complaints I've heard people say they have with, with anime, not really knowing the answer as to why, uh, is that, and, and this one, I think I'm, my my previous answer was kind of right on is they use a much lower frame rate in their animation than they a do. Disney film does. And that's because it's cheaper and faster. It's not necessarily that it's cheaper. Is it not? Because like, I mean, they're making a lot of it. It is to none a, of that well, has to do with yes and no. To be clear, it, something like Sailor Moon is going to have a, a, a lower frame rate and a lower production value than something like uh, Cowboy Bebop. So your budget does come in does come into terms with it. But when we're talking about big major film productions, that shit doesn't matter. It is entirely a choice in regards to this movie. That all of those are artistic choices it's not because of budgeting reasons but in the 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 one thing where that kind of works for them though is that because well i don't know if this works for them i don't know if this is a consideration even but because the the because of the frame rate and because the the animation when people are talking is just so like pac-man-y like just the mouth is either open or shut while they're talking. And it's just depending on the degrees that it is open or shut. Uh, it's much easier to overdub it in a different language and have it line up. And the sad thing is no one does voice acting like Japanese anime. The, because like 90% of what they do is animated. So like voice actors are huge over there. And yeah, like they're over very well here, respected. they're well respected and there's more of them. So it's like, if you have a casting pool of a thousand people going for a role in Japan, the English version, it's like, there's 10 people you can pick from. I'm making these numbers up completely, but I'm also, you not, are, very much. but, but I'm also not entirely <laughs> wrong on this, on the, the, the spirit of the thing. You know what yeah. I mean? 40% of the time, Liam's right all the time. I know 50% of everything. <laughs> 50% of everything. So I think the thing to remember with this, this is very much, this is an art film. This is not yes. something that was made on a budget. This is something that every, and Studio Ghibli is very well known for this. Like they are known for handcrafting every frame. Like this is hand painted. All of this was hand-drawn. Every cell is hand-painted, all of it. And he did that up until, I think Mononoke was the last one. Princess Mononoke was the last uh, hand-painted one. It might be spirited away, but I'm pretty sure that one was done with the computers. So they were very dedicated to making these not just stories or animated stories or whatever, to making these art pieces. They wanted the images to move people as much as the story. And that's why, like, in particular, when you're watching, like, Setsuko cry, like, those big tears that well up in her eyes and pour down her face, those are meant to elicit that kind of uh, sympathetic response from you because it's so dramatized with the animation. In humans, you know, our tears are tiny. With On the animation, it's so much more outsized because the tears are, like... 
you know, as big as the eyes themselves, and they're just pouring down her face in these giant rivulets. Yeah, it's very so they're very artistic. using the art to punch up the emotions. So yeah, let's get into some of the scenes here and kind of maybe you guys pick your favorites or the most intense ones or whatever. But um, right off the bat, um, and I just rewatched it, I was really struck by the first bombing run scene. And again, if we haven't said it, this is set in um, beginning of 1945 Kobe, um, is which is a southwestern Japanese city near Osaka. And this is one of the cities that was famously firebombed by the U.S. military um, pre-atomic bombings. And you can read and hear accounts of firebombings, especially in European cities where you have a lot of brick, a lot of solid buildings. And um, I think it's in one of Dan Carlin's um, series on Hardcore History where he reads an account of someone watching like this cyclone of fire moving down one of the streets and like engulfing people and like melting the asphalt and people people like dying in this it's just insane like it sounds like a description of hell on earth so it was interesting knowing a little bit about that to kind of see how it was depicted here since the i think the bombings were it's just different than a european city for one back then japan was basically mostly built out of paper and wood um i was gonna say it's like this was not the little pig that built his house out of bricks these were like the first two brothers right i don't know like in tokyo what the percentage of brick and mortar versus wood was but definitely in these and this is a this is a the sixth most populous city in japan at the time about a million people population but still pretty rural though right yeah lots of farming around it for sure and again it's possible that Tokyo at the time was built with a little bit more metal and brick. Kyoto, by comparison, is a city that was never firebombed during the war. So if you go visit Japan now, you can kind of see what old Japan looked like back then, as opposed to these cities that have been rebuilt. Um, And the strategy, of course, was to, you know, spread fire and destroy these towns so that it would cause the starvation and dwindling population that it ended up causing because that was going to be a problem for the war effort. Essentially, most of the country was militarized by this point and civilians were all, there's rationing and civilians are growing rice where they're donating most of it or turning most of it into the government to feed soldiers, etc. Um, and yeah, so there's a couple of different tactical things that they did in terms of firebombing cities in Japan. Um, one of them being that often it was combined with traditional bombing where you actually destroyed some buildings, opened them up, and then followed through with a firebombing because that gave you way more access to actually light things on fire and burn things down. Um, but what I was surprised to see is the point of view of Seta as he's running down the street, the alarms go off in that, in that kind of initial scene. And he grabs his sister, you know, grabs a couple of belongings and they're running out. And you see the B-29s coming overhead and starting to drop these firebombs. And it's just, yeah, it was, I've never seen that before. It was such an interesting depiction and probably pretty realistic because this was just a straight firebombing. So it wasn't something where, um, you know, you have these massive explosions and thousands of people dying all at once and buildings breaking open. It's like 
almost anticlimactic at first because these like tiny sort of metal canisters or these long canisters are dropping. Yeah, they look like torches being dropped. Right. And then once they're dropped and the B-29 sound is over, it's almost like eerily quiet. Right. And then the fire starts to take over and, and things start to light on fire. And of course, then it becomes very violent. Um, and I'm not 100% sure if that particular scene was depicted accurately. I looked into firebombing technology just a little bit, which is kind of depressing to read about because, you know, you, you get into these technical terms about weapons making. And of course, from this perspective, you're also thinking about the damage that it does on the other end. So it's it's a it's a weird thing to read about. But um firebombs at this time for the most part they were using the um e46 cluster which was basically a container that was putting a bunch of these m69 incendiary bomblets which are these separate containers and it held 38 of them don't ask me why they called it an e46 when its capacity was 40 or 38 units you'd think it would have been called an e38 but whatever nonetheless the planes are dropping you know a few hundred of these each and then they sort of spread out um in the air and um they're full of napalm and other incendiary devices. There's a couple of different kinds, but mostly it was napalm. And they would drop into places and had a fuse. And so once they dropped and hit their target, then a fuse would go off and then they would explode a, f- a few seconds later, spreading the napalm, which is napalm essentially turns into like a fire jelly. You see a lot of it in Vietnam and stuff. So it sticks to things and is incendiary. So really, really damaging. Um, so yeah, it's interesting to see it from the perspective of them running down the street where these cannons are there and whether they didn't have fuses didn't go off or that's just the way they depicted them um the way the violence starts is when you see the fire take over the houses and the windows start to come out and it's like very obvious the violence that is coming but yeah it's a, it's a really interesting content contrast to see the beginning of that scene to what happens later um and as far as from what i've read um i've also read max hastings uh, retribution if you've never read it which is all about the end of the war in the pacific in world war ii really really good book he's a british historian and the descriptions of just dead bodies uh, especially in the canals people that were trying to find water you know and save themselves from the fire and stuff and so the cleanup crews that went through afterwards are pretty accurate i mean i I think that what you see in terms of the death and destruction and the aftermath trying to find bodies seeing buildings destroyed was pretty well depicted in the film it's also kind of fucked up to think that like just from a strategic standpoint, the uh, four-year-old girl starving to death was not a bug, but a feature of the firebombing. Yeah. Like, that was the point. Yeah. Makes you feel real good about everything. I think the other thing, this this film really tries to get to the reality of what it is to live in those situations. And I think it gets them so well. Like when we see Seta and Setsuko in the air raid shelter and you know, she's four in this and it's a very well depicted four-year-old, like good God, who wouldn't want to have a four-year-old that well behaved. But right, so yeah, we'll put we'll a pin in that one for later. Cause I got some shit to say, <laughs> but you know, it depicts them. You know, it's not just that they're afraid, it's that they're frustrated and tired of doing this, and they just want it to be over, and they're just so overwhelmed by it, and it all feels – you can really understand how they feel, and that 
they're so conflicted. Like they, they have this loyalty to Japan over the war, this fear and hatred of America and the allies, but they're also living this really difficult life because it, it, despite those moments of joy that we talked about, we see, you know, they're starving, they're, they don't have resources, they, and no one has them. It's not just these two kids. It's that, you know, the aunt doesn't, the farmer doesn't, they can't help them. They can't have any, even any charity for these two children. And that is the thing that for me overwhelmingly felt more, the most brutal is what the war does, not just to the kids, but to the people around them where they can't even extend charity. Yeah. And and, uh, on top of charity, I thought that the scene where he takes, um, Setsuko to the doctor was very illustrative of that where the doctor is identifying what's wrong with her which is mostly malnutrition and then he's like there's your answer there you go next and he's like well what do you mean aren't you gonna give her some medicine or a shot or something and he's like no she needs food and he's like well, where am I supposed to get food like it was such a stark depiction of like it's it's like going to a mechanic and the mechanic's like, yep, your number three cylinder's fucked. And you're like, okay, what are we going to do? He's like, well, it's going to cost $1,800 to replace it. Like, well, I don't have that. He's like, well, I guess your car's not going anywhere. Except that this is a person and his sister that we're talking about, right? And it was just crazy to see that. Yeah, it's like he could tell, her th- he could tell him that like, oh, well, she needs pixie dust on the top of Fire Mountain that's guarded by the Dragon of Doom. And like, it would be the same thing as just be like, give her some rice. Well, right. Like, it- it's... It's just as likely. And you can see it in this doctor that that's like the hundredth kid that week that he's seen like that, where he's like, oh, yep, these are the telltale signs. What do you want me to do? You want me to feel bad for you? Like, I can't provide food for all these kids that are coming in with malnutrition. That's just, it is what it is, you know? And that was just like a really sad reality. And it really hits home when Seta gets those few moments of compassion from people. Because you see so many moments of people who just don't have any compassion. Like when um, he gets caught stealing at the farm, Mm -hmm. which totally out of context reminded me so much of the scene in uh, Fellowship of the Ring where they get caught stealing mushrooms from um, the farmer there. it was so awful. It was like, God damn it, get out of my head. When, uh, I, they were stealing vegetables, right? They were stealing vegetables. No, it was and mushrooms. Then they, they fell on the mushrooms. Yeah, that's right. It's a so, shortcut to mushrooms. It's the name it, of the chapter. That, just that's saying. right. So, you know, you see this farmer who's just is so irate. How dare you? You have, I'm taking you to jail. You're going to prison. And the crazy true thing is, this is where that actual story deviates from the narrative is because um, the author, Nosaka, spent time in jail for stealing at 14. And his, do- his sister had already died by then. Mm. So that's where the story really deviates. A- and having, and it's, it's even more poignant when um, the guard who's, you know, or police official Policeman, or whatever yeah. the guy is. Yeah. Says, you know, like, well, I see you've beaten this child. And if you don't get the hell out of here, you're going to jail, not him. And you see that moment of kindness. Would you like a glass of water or something, son? Well, that moment of kindness didn't actually exist for Nosaka. That was one of the um, creative That was liberties. revisionism. 
Yes, that was one of the creative liberties he Damn. took with the story was to make a character who had that empathy and care and was just like, you know what, bro? Here's some food. You just chill. It's okay. I understand where you're coming from as a 14-year-old trying to deal with this. So, And that makes it just so much more sad that there wasn't for the actual person who lived this he didn't get any of that kindness. And so, but he was willing to make his story, I don't know, hopeful. incrementally more hopeful than what actually happened. Yeah. So, going back to the depiction of a four year old in a movie, uh, mm -hmm. having kids. I've been, like, this is something that didn't really grate on me much when I was younger. I mean, I'd like notice it with just sort of like, meh, you know, that, that doesn't look right. But like, after you have kids, you have like you, the thing that you notice is that nobody does kids in movies, right? <laughs> like across the board in most movies to the point where you're like, holy shit, that movie really nailed kids. Like, yeah. that was amazing. Uh, it's really hard to do because kids are awful. Uh, <laughs> and Sometimes. No, like, uh, most of the time. Like, everything sucks about having kids except the kids. And even they're a little iffy sometimes. But, like, they're, <laughs> I, I, you know, so my six-year-old, I, I, I had a hard time. So this is where this is where uh, my cold dead heart kind of opened up a little bit was my youngest. I have three kids. My youngest daughter is six uh, and still very much the baby of the family. And then my oldest is my son is 10. So the ages were a little bit closer. But, you know, there were times when I was trying to uh, when I was, I was trying like not even trying, but I was just sort of happened to imagine them in these positions. Um, I don't know where my middle kid was. She's off doing middle kid things because nobody loves her. Uh, <laughs> to hear her tell it anyway. Yeah, uh, that's the middle child. That's thing, the middle kid sure. thing. Like no, she never gets anything special. Um, but in this, in this particular instance, I think she'd be fine being left out of the scenario, but you know, watching everything that they're going through, I've, my kids fight so much that I have a really hard time picturing my son taking care of his younger sister like that. I'm sure he probably would if the chips were down, but it would be under protest and he'd complain a lot. But watching, like, I would love to see my six-year-old deal with that aunt because she would not in any way, shape, or form just take that aunt's attitude and just be like, oh, I kind of don't, I really wish we had some rice. Like, that's not how Frankie rolls. Like, she would just, like, straight up give that bitch the business. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh. yeah, my son would be the same. So sassy. Oh, my God. Like, who, like, that <laughs> would not stand a chance. Would not stand a chance. Like, and that's, I, a, that's a cultural thing as well, a cultural I, difference. Maybe, but like, I, I, it's cultural slash generational because, like, I probably would have been the four year old that just quietly starved in the corner. Like, I just can't fathom them just like sitting there and taking that from that terrible, terrible woman and just being like, no, I'm not selling that. I love that. That's my mother's. 
And I think it shows their resolve crumbling by the end. Why Seita is like, fuck this. I'm done. I'm not putting up with your crap anymore. Like the, my, my kids would have ruled that house by the, by the time the war was over. Just like it would not have taken a, an ounce of her lip. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like they would have gotten a lot of beatings with a stick back then that day in, in Japan, too. Yes. Yes. That's that's a distinct possibility. <laughs> but I I also wouldn't put it past them to not give a fuck. Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, it's interesting, too. I am curious about the farmers because in this situation, it seems that being a farmer – was certainly an advantage because regardless of whether the government's taking 90% or 95% or whatever, like your family's going to have food off of that farm. You know, it seems like a good time to be a farmer is when everybody is starving because you can wheel and deal with people. The government depends on you, etc. cetera. Um, but yeah, beyond that, we're talking about a period. Uh, this is beginning in 1945. So the war for Japan was over. Um, by I want to say August time frame after we dropped the bombs, they officially surrendered. And so you're talking about the extremes of propaganda. The government implemented neighborhood associations um, that you know involved organizing the distribution of rations and volunteer labor, coordination of savings. Um, and ensuring recruitment into the army and navy where the attrition rates were huge. And you know, But at this point in the war, Japan had lost a lot of huge naval battles. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's got to be weird to be on the losing end of a war where the government like kind of knows what's going on, but they're also in denial, meaning that the fanatical sort of devotion that they had towards the emperor and their own military industrial complex was such that um for most of the war essentially like any general that had common sense and disagreed with the decisions that were being made was just fired and replaced immediately so everyone at the top um tiers of the military were just yes men who were just going to go along with the plan but someone is still bean counting here and someone knows and it's very obvious that they're like running out of oil and that they're only going to be able to fuel their ships for so long. So the writing was on the wall for probably a couple of years here. Um, and so at this point, the government's asking people to, you know, deprive themselves and do the rationing and all this stuff. But they know that the war is a lost effort at this point. And so how much that's trickling down to the population is a good question. But I imagine that information was very tightly controlled and that the civilians had some kind of hope still that there was going to be some kind of truce. At one point, they're talking. I can't. I couldn't pull up the exact line, but at one point, a couple of characters are talking about uh, a typhoon. Um, and the divine wind. And I think they might be referencing kamikaze pilots at this point, but there's an interesting bit of history here. Um, and I actually learned this doing some research for, uh, for anybody who is playing video games on a PlayStation, uh, ghost of Tsushima is like, man, one of the best games I've ever played, but that's, uh, I probably mentioned it on here before that's set in Japan in the 1200s during the Mongol invasions of Japan. And what ended up happening historically um, twice 
is that in the 1270s, when the Mongols, who at this point controlled northern China, did their first invasion of mainland Japan, and Tsushima Island was halfway, and so that's why this story came up, because that's where the Mongols landed uh, at first. Their navy was swept away by a typhoon, essentially, and so they had to go back to China and Mongolia and recover. Seven years later, they did it again, and while they were in port, another typhoon came through and destroyed their navy again. And so Kublai went back to Mongolia and basically said, Japan is protected by this divine wind and it cannot be conquered because they have the gods on their side. Um, and you can't ride a horse to Japan. Right. And so that that continued through the ages to the point where all the way through the end of World War II, you're hearing people referring to Kamikaze, this divine wind, um, being sort of this protection from the gods. And in, in this part of the war, it was an offensive strategy, but in the past had been sort of nature saving them from invasion. So it's interesting to see a comment about that that was obviously part of the zeitgeist and part of the culture at the time. Well, and it's also, right. that's something that you hear not even just uh, from Japan, but like, I, I can't remember who who wrote it, but the uh, this this other Eden demi-paradise poem about uh uh england uh talks about this this precious stone set in the silver sea to defend like set by nature to defend against itself like it's there's a lot of advantages to being on an island (laughs) you know it's Mm -hmm. it makes you kind of tough to get to Right. And, and, and and there seems until to be aircraft like, became a thing. Exactly. Yeah. And up until that point, like there was a there was an idea that, you know, there like a mythology that builds up about, you know, your own culture and your own civilization. And a lot of them that sprung up from islands uh had that that sort of mindset that's like, you know, we were protected, like they can't get to us here. Pros and cons, for sure. I think uh, there were times um, during, especially in the 1800s, where Japan all of a sudden realized that their isolation had also um, kept them behind on technological advancement. And they had like a lot of catching up to do in that century in terms of firearms and just military technology to catch up to the rest of the world. Um but yeah, it's, it's a fascinating period to read about from a military history perspective because, again, Japan was invading other places and was being imperialist and taking over island nations, taking over... Um, China and World War II. Yeah, part of China, part of Russia, um, or part of the Russian colonies. Um, and then things started to turn around um, and again, there was this very – in the same way that it was obvious that Germany was going to lose the war in the last few years of the war. Um, and I think that was a it, – it was a foregone conclusion before we decided to drop the atomic bombs on Japan. The question was, were we going to get these civilians to surrender and acquiesce or were we going to have to invade Japan with – with land forces, which were obviously going to cause a lot of deaths on both sides. And that was the big debate at the time. Um, It's still debated. It it still is. And it's something where, again, you can look at these councils that made decisions with the military for the U.S. when we were testing the A-bomb in July of 1945, and then we sort of approved the use of it. Um, Again, you have to go all the way back to World War I and prior for the first times where it was basically 
the military and governments made a decision that it was okay to attack and bomb civilian populations. There's because as a defense before then, they started to build factories and military armament stuff was being built in cities. And so they were like, oh, can't bomb us here. It's a city. And of course, that changed the rules of the game because we said, okay, fine. You're going to build, you know, your aircraft factories in your city. We're going to bomb your city. And obviously, the civilian casualties are going to be really high. But that happened way before A-bombs were, you know, before we decided to drop the atomic bomb. So there's a there's a previous question that needs to be asked where is it okay to bomb civilian uh, populations in the first place before we start asking questions about was it okay that we dropped the A-bomb? And I think the other part of the question, which again is not explored in this particular film, is um, was it necessary when it happened? Because I've read in Retribution, for example, I read that I think five out of seven of um, Truman's top generals told them, you don't need to drop the bomb. They're literally running out of gas another like two weeks and Japan's going to have to surrender anyways because otherwise they're going to have to watch their entire civilian population slowly starve, um, which was already starting to happen. So yeah, it's a it's a really interesting time period from military history perspective. But of course, this film gives us a very small microcosm of what it was like for just two children going through it, which is fascinating. Well, and also, like I didn't... I didn't, uh, you know, do too much digging into the movie before watching it because I I wanted to come to it fairly, like spoiler free and fresh. Um, but prior to seeing it, um, the only thing I knew was it was about like kids in Japan, World War Two, and bombings. So my mind assumed that it was like kids dealing with the aftermath of the atomic bomb. I assumed that too, before I saw it. Cause yeah. there was like, when you think Japan and bomb, there's really just one place that your mind goes Two, technically. Yeah. Fair. But what do you think of first? Yeah. Like you think Japan bomb, you think Hiroshima and then you're like, Oh yeah. And Nagasaki. But the, the the fact that like there were all of these like fire bombings and things like that going on that you know it, it's almost like the atom bomb overshadowed every other shitty thing that the japanese people went through during this you know it's it, it makes it very difficult to to see something like this in a microcosm and be like, oh, it wasn't just that one thing that we always learned about. It was like an ongoing campaign of just raining fire on children in rice fields. Well, and the movie really explores that with Seta and his reaction. You know, he's going to the bank. He finds out that the war is over. When he goes to the bank, he realizes that Setsuko is going to die unless he gets food. So he goes to pull out the last of their money from the bank. And while he's waiting in line, he hears that the war is over and that Japan lost. You're telling me Japan's lost the war? The great Japanese empire? Yeah. Surrendered unconditionally. Well, what about the fleet? Are they... <laughs> All gone. The whole fleet's been sent to the bottom of the sea. Not one left to float. And his crushing reaction to that and how upset he gets is such a great example of what it was like for the Japanese folks who were in no way informed. Like, we never see Seita finding out about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. No. 
Like, mm-hmm. He doesn't know that. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know why the war is over. He just knows that it's over. And the thing that kind of rings throughout it, uh, you watch as an adult and and you can see where the despair that he shows comes from. Because as a child, it's more about like he's lost. He's obviously now lost his father who he thought was alive all this time. And what's he going to do? And all of these immediate worries for him. But as an adult, it, it much more comes across as, well, why the fuck did we even do this then? Why did this happen? What are we doing? I We made all these sacrifices. My mom died. Now I've lost my dad. You said we were going to be victorious. And now we're here and my sister is dying of malnutrition. And I'm not too far away from that. And the country isn't helping me. And you've just given up. I was surprised, honestly, that he had as much of a reaction to it as he did because like me being in that position, I can only imagine I would have been like, well, okay, just one more thing. You know, it's like, I've got a dying sister at home that I have to worry about that. Like just so many other things that it's like, you know, like this person's dead and that person's dead and this person's dead. Oh yeah. And we lost the war. Who gives a shit about the war? Like everybody's dying. And when we thought we were winning the war. So like, what's it matter? You know, I was, I was a little impressed by, I don't know if impressed is the right, but it, 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 it struck me as, uh, different from what my reaction would have been at that point where I'd have just been like, this might as well happen. Well, I think as a child, Seta is holding out hope that his dad is going to come home and take all of these responsibilities off his shoulder, or his dad's going to send him money or some kind of communication that will enable him and Satsuko to survive this. And then when he finds out, you know, it's not, my dad is dead, and we've lost the war. And there was a lot of propaganda in Japan at the time that... If the Americans come and invade, they are going to rape and pillage and murder everyone. It's not It's not just going to be like, oh, war's over. It's fine. They are going to decimate our entire population with these things. And so... Which is ironic because if you read accounts or watch anything that is from the perspective of, say, civilians in the Philippines when the Japanese were invading, that is exactly what the Japanese did in those places and the rape of... Nanking is really famous or infamous. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, but, but again, that's that's different from that's the thing. You have to. There's obviously global politics here, and then there's the military, and then there's civilian populations, which may or may not be aware of what's going on in certain places, kind of depending on how the propaganda is controlled. Right, and for the most part, the Japanese population at this time was not very well educated. They, you know, reading a newspaper or listening to the radio was not a thing that the majority of folks had access to. This is something where they are hearing it from speeches given in the town square or word of mouth from their relatives or friends or neighbors. So for them, they're still living on this very uh, specific information diet. So they don't have a wide-ranging perspective. And I really thought it was such a great move to include that Seita's reaction to finding out that his dad is gone and that the war is over. And it all, for him, went to nothing. And he is going 
he's lost not just his mom, but his dad. And now, and he, he can tell that his sister is right on the brink at that point, you know, because it's that same day where he goes home and he, he's gotten his money, he's bought the food, he goes home to their air raid shelter and tells her, just stay alive, stay alive, I'm going to make the food, I'm going to make the food. And then before he can even finish making dinner for them, she's gone. And the reality is, as an adult, you know, even if she'd gotten that food, it was too late. Yeah. It's probably too late two days before that, right. honestly. Yeah, it was so tragic. It is, and it's such a hard death scene and especially because they take the time to show you what happens after it's not you don't just get the death scene you then get to see him going and buying the preparation materials to burn her body you see him burn her body and so you get to go through the whole grief process with him and it's so devastating to watch especially as westerners where you know we take our bodies to the funeral home and then you know, we don't have anything to do with them. This kid is, you know, literally has to find a place to burn her. And that's just totally normal. That's just, it, the guy's like, here you go. Here, this is all you'll need. Yeah, I was going to say, like, that guy is just like, what is it, a kid? It's a little oh, one? About it. You don't even, you don't need, tell you what, I'll give you a discount. Like, I was like, what the fuck is going on with this guy that is just like, yeah, like, it, you, it's a small child. So you won't need to, you won't need that much to burn her. It'll be fine. Part of that is because of, you know, Shinto is the primary religion in Japan. Mm-hmm. There's some Buddhists, some Christians, but generally Shinto is the way people are. And that's a much more traditional Shinto way of doing things. And they have a completely different relationship with religion than us Westerners do, yes. to be sure. But it hits so hard. It hits so hard to have to watch him do this. And then it makes that opening point even more affecting when you see that he's collected because i don't think we see it in the movie i don't think we see him actually collecting the bones and putting them in no the you tin. see them in the beginning yeah when you don't know what they are right. you're like why is he keeping chalk in a tin of candy like so by the end we know that like not only did he do all of these things, he's taken one sad little remnant and that that was probably all that was left. I mean, she was four. Four-year-olds are like two and a half, maybe three feet tall, maybe 50 pounds if they're big kids. So there's not much left of them. And he had all, all he has left fit in this little, you know, fruit candy tin and it's just or the fruit drops. And it's it's like as you watch the movie and you realize what the references are from that first scene, it just hits you harder and harder. Yeah, I kept thinking back to the scene where they, she eats the last fruit drop and then there's like the bits of it in there and so he mixes it with water and shakes it up and makes her a little like Mm -hmm. candy cocktail out of it, you know, and she's like, oh, you can taste it. It was just like (laughs) such a sweet, moment that everyone who's been a child could relate to while also they're still using this literally this vessel that we know is going to hold her own ashes later and it's just like such a symbolic like item in the film um and now you can actually they the company that made those fruit drops sakura drops is what they're called still exists in japan and they do make commemorative tins that are just like the one in grave of the fireflies 
Yes. Wow. Yes, because of Grave of the Fireflies. And it is a collector's item in is, Japan. Is that is that weird? <laughs> no, not for Japan. Do they have like can they do a special edition that had like did you guys ever have like the candy cigarettes, but they were like dinosaur bones? Hmm. <laughs> oh no. No, like, can I don't, they do they've probably done that, Liam. Can they but... do that? Like where you just like pull the little bones out? Like little fragments of bone and like and char, then, and then eat them. Man, yeah, this, this getting, I hope not. I don't, that's getting too weird. Getting really is it too dark? dark? Too dark. Is that too dark? <laughs> We've crossed the line here. It's like that. It's like that coffee meme where it's just like, let's commit murder. <laughs> too dark. Pour some cream in the coffee. Let's contemplate murder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My biggest question for you guys is what you thought of the ending. Honestly, because this ending is so very poignant. And like I had to look up. Oh, I was like, okay, where are they? Where are they? And, and they're on a hill overlooking modern day Kobe. And and so this was made in 1988 to remind everyone. And so this is very 1988 Kobe with lots of neon and tall buildings and all that. And it very much feels like the film is trying to say these actions and these folks are still still exist today they their their lives still have an effect and their experiences still have an effect on modern day japan because not everybody died at that age there are still i mean uh, isao takahata who directed this died 2018 nasako who wrote this died 2008 so like we are just reaching the end of this these people are s- somewhat still in existence now you know it struck me as now i know this came out way earlier uh obviously so it's it's not um not saying that it was like biting scorsese's rhymes or anything like that but it had a a bit of a like gangs of new york ending sort of feel where it's like the you know time fast like cuts forward but like the the grave is like getting decomposed and for is like New York city is building up around it. Like that sort of thing. If the point of this movie was to remind people of what happened, it, it struck me as the fact that like society and civilization has continued to run over these people and left them behind without taking stock or without uh so much as a, a a nod of recognition towards the these ghost children you know because even when he's dying in the train terminal people just think he's gross you know it's like nobody cares about these kids nobody cared about them when they were alive nobody cared about them when they were dead and civilization has completely left them behind and forgotten about them now that they're ghosts and they and i think that the point of this movie might be to not do that yeah that's that's not how i saw that scene and just doing the research and looking into the sort of well was this made as as an anti-war film and i think the director was pretty adamant that it was not um, and that it did not have any such message and that his message was just to show you the experience of these two kids in obviously a very, you know, intense circumstance. Um, I didn't view that scene that way in terms of 
getting steamrolled or building over, especially because if you take the time to consider same way they had to do this in Berlin. That's why if you go to Berlin, Berlin's like a modern city because it was rebuilt in the 50s because it was a bomb to smithereens. Um, and a lot of, I think like, yeah, a good, like at least 50% of Kobe was destroyed in these several bombings. These happened over over the course of six months or so. Um, and you got to consider that the city had to pull together later, you know, clean all of this up and rebuild over the you know on the ashes of this destroyed part of the city and think about the bodies and think about all the people that have passed and i'm sure there are you know commemorative plaques and etc etc another thing that the trivia mentions about the i can't remember if it was the original writer or the director but they mentioned article 9 of the japanese constitution which i'd never read for myself it's the director so thank you um so Takahata talks about how much he supported the writing of Article 9, which was, you know, written in conjunction with the U.S. when we restricted the further militarization of Japan after World War II and restricted them to having a self-defense force. And essentially, it's actually really short, so I can just read it in its entirety. But here's Article 9 of the Japanese Constitution. And it says, aspiring sincerely to an international peace based on justice and order, the Japanese people forever renounce war as a sovereign right of the nation and the threat of use of force as means of settling international disputes. In order to accomplish the aim of the preceding paragraph, land, sea, and air forces, as well as other war potential, will never be maintained. The right of belligerency of the state will not be recognized. Um... And that's interesting. Again, that was written in conjunction with the U.S. So this is partly the U.S. telling Japan, you're never going to do that again. But I think it's also partially the Japanese people looking back on what happened when they got sort of carried away with this reverence for the emperor and imperialism and this conformity to not question what the government was doing um, ended up really badly for them in a similar way that things ended for Germany. So I think the civilian population, the workers, all the people that rebuilt Kobe as just one of the cities that was destroyed and annihilated in Japan had a lot of time to think about this. So I don't know. I see it as hopeful. I see it. I I don't see it as anybody forgetting these children. I see it more as like, and I don't know how Shintoism works, but I see it more as like our ancestors kind of looking down on us and seeing us move forward and like, what are we going to rebuild and where are we going to take society from here? That, that's kind of how I took that ending. And that's a, that's a very good interpretation of Shinto. Shinto is, all, there is a lot of, for lack of a better term, ancestor worship. It is very much about recognizing those who came before you and honoring them and all of that. I think uh, I, I absolutely get that. I think it it th- where it clangs for me is with how they're treated throughout the entire rest of the movie and also with how he's treated uh in the very beginning. Mhm. Mm-hmm. In the very beginning and again watching the beginning going back and rewatching the beginning it it hit me a lot harder how terribly he was being received it was almost like it because of and i don't think this was all one conversation and i don't think it was all one person but because of the progression of the dialogue 
it made it sound like they were having company over and they were afraid of the place being dirty when they were like, Ooh, tramps gross, man. I hope they get these people cleaned up. The Americans will be here soon. Like that's what it sounds like just because of the order that those Mm -hmm. lines come in. And I don't know if it was necessarily intended that way. That's how it read to me the second time through it. And it's just these kids, uh, starving to death right in front of you in a, in a train terminal is so commonplace that, you know, the guy's going to poke one with a stick and then go, oh, this one too. The eyes, you can tell by the eyes. That's how you know they're dead. Yeah, I mean, it's a process of desensitization, right? Because they're seeing this all the time. It It is. And the casual cruelty. That's the other thing is, and wanting to, I think, beyond that, at the time when that is happening, which would have been 1945, maybe 46, they want to sweep it under the rug. They want to make it all go away. Just nothing, nothing happened. So it, it strikes me as a little like much like with the food to his sister, too little, too late, mm-hmm. you know, as far as like going back in and uh, nodding, you know, is, you know, remembering them later or revering them later. Come on, man. Like there's, you didn't give a shit before. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? So like if the, it, it, it might not have been the, the artist's intention, but that's what, that's how I received it as being like, it's, this is a story that the only reason to tell this story is to stop it from happening again or to, or to pay attention to where it is happening in your life and where your attitudes are the same as the attitudes of the evil bitch ant. And I think that's a totally accurate and valid interpretation, honestly, because having read about Takahara's feelings on the war, his future projects after this that never came to fruition and all of that, like Takahara was very uh, critical of, and not just him, but Nasako, the original author, were very critical of the Japanese government's response to the just regular populace of Japan and what they suffered in the name of the greatness of the country and all of that shit that all countries do because of nationalism. I think you're totally spot on and that it is a nuanced discussion mm-hmm. of, you know, the beginning of the movie makes clear that these, that the populace at the time very much considered these people undesirable. Like, go away. You're reminding us of all, you're reminding all of us of the bad times. But I think the end is more open to interpretation because they're sitting on a bench made to look over Kobe. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not just that they're standing on a hill. There's a bench that they're sitting on that overlooks the city and allows for reflection and a more nuanced interpretation. And I think you're both totally I think both of these interpretations are totally spot on because there's definitely a sense of hope at the end of like, look at how far we've come, look at where we are and where Kobe is at now versus where it was at in the beginning of the movie, where these people are very dismissive and cruel and just don't want to be reminded of the negative past. So, you know, I really liked this movie as much as one can like a movie that's 
soul crushing because oh god is it soul crushing i did not choose to rewatch it once is enough in in a two-week period and i think the director and uh the author of the original short story who was so closely involved in creating this movie really got their point home because they were really aiming for a lot of nuance they wanted people to think about these things and think about them from a complicated perspective of the, the from the aunt who is both trying to protect her her daughter and i couldn't tell if the guy who's living with them is just someone who was placed there no, he was boarding or, with her like that was the yeah. that was the thing is was that like that that was her daughter right the one who was going off to work in a factory or whatever yes, that's her daughter okay because it I don't know that the relationship. I think because of the the gentleman border, uh, it seemed like their relationship seemed very similar to their relationship with him. Except maybe they were both like a little more uh, reverent towards him in some yes. way, and 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 a little more familiar with each other. But like it didn't. They weren't very different relationships from what we saw. Right, and you see that guy. You see the border, who's kind of like. I feel for you, but I'm not going to get involved. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to mess with my what my landlady has going on, but I definitely feel like maybe something isn't right here. And, you know, the director ob- obviously wanted to make people think about not just the past, but the future, considering the ending he chose and how the past affects the future and how we as individuals who are watching the film treat people who are not just war orphans, but orphans in our own society, who just as much it's no fault of their own that they're going through this, as though it being their fault is a reason to be an asshole. But you know what I mean? Like, they're innocent children. Absolutely. And this is not one that is a war movie, so it's not going to be on our list. Um, but have either of you seen uh, the film Beasts of the Southern Wild? No, it's on my list. No, I haven't seen that. Really good movie, but it's about this unspeakably poor, like, bayou community. Around the time of Hurricane Katrina is is sort of the, around when it was made in, like, that sort of environment. Um, kind of had a lot of similarities in my mind to this, except way more jubilant and way more hopeful and it's a little girl who instead of like being taken care of by an older brother is like being taken care of by a dad who is um really not a perfect dad but in his own weird way trying his best but it like their their situation when they were living in the bomb shelter did not strike me as being too different from some of the stuff that was happening in 21st century America in that film, but that film was a lot. You should definitely watch it because it's a fantastic movie, but it was, um, it was also like a lot more hopeful than, than this movie is. I felt, um, the, as, as far as, as far as this movie is concerned, I, I really did like it, uh, an awful lot. And, I I probably didn't think as much about the very end as you guys did because it I was still stuck on uh putting my 6-year-old in a coffin and burning her 
uh, like two scenes earlier, um, is sort of where I was stuck at. Fair. But, um, you know, so, uh, I didn't cry and I wasn't overwhelmed with sadness by it, but when my six-year-old asked me to snuggle that night, I, I maybe snuggled for a couple extra minutes, maybe like held her just a little bit closer, you know, um, that, that sort of thing. But I think it makes you appreciate what you have and not take it for granted. And it does want you to never see any children in that kind of circumstance, especially your own. So yeah, no, really, really good movie. And Dan, it was interesting. The point that you brought up about the, the article in the Japanese constitution, because that sounds like uh, at least from a cursory like a glance, it sounds very similar to sort of what was uh, imposed on Germany at the end of world war one. And that didn't go so hot to say the least, but uh, yeah, that, that didn't go terribly well. So I wonder what the big difference is with, uh, with Japan post-World war two versus Germany post-World war one. Um, that's, I mean, just kind of like a hanging question I'll leave out there, but I thought it was a fantastic film. Um, I haven't seen a bad movie from studio Ghibli, uh, and much like the gif gif debate, uh, I always in my head pronounce it Ghibli because Ghibli sounds like giblets and I want to make gravy out of it. So, but I, I acknowledge that that is an incorrect pronunciation, but Katie, I just need you to know that in my head, I still call it Studio Ghibli because Ghibli sounds funny to me. I'm, I'm, we'll, we'll have to have the audience chime in. I don't want to, Katie's definitely the expert here, but I still think it might be Ghibli. So let, let's see what everyone, no, they don't have let's that. Let's see what everyone has to say about that this. Phrase. <laughs> they, they don't, they don't make that noise. They don't in make the it Japanese har- language. So there's no ja, hard G. They, no, guh. Guh. Ghibli is, it's the, the H. The H is the thing that makes it different. They do have the hard G. Gagi Gugegel is a thing in Japan, but if it was supposed to be pronounced that way, it would have been G I B L I, and then it would have been Ghibli if if you were pronouncing it that way. But no, it's it's Ghibli. Trust okay. me. All right. Well, I mean, that's kind of like there's no uh, there's no soft C in the Gaelic language. That's why it's Celtic, not Celtic. But it's um, the same thing. Yes. But it's still in my brain. I still call it Ghibli, and nobody's going to be able to stop me. Many people do. You're not alone. Ghibli, son of Gloin. <laughs> We're just going to have a Lord of the Rings reference, at least one on every goddamn. You got to have one, Probably. and if you're lucky, it's not going to be me shitting on Peter Jackson. Yo, Frodo, what you doing wearing the ring? All powerful jewelry is that your new thing? I know it's hard when you're little more than three foot four. Your little ass so close to the floor. Trying to yeah, I I agree. I definitely think there's there's nothing really to criticize this film about yeah it's funny to see the director be so adamant that he did not make an anti-war movie and it's like okay maybe that wasn't your goal but i just think in depicting what you depicted in such stark 
detail and realism and gloominess i it can't i don't think anybody in the audience can help but consider the repercussions of war even if you th- you know depending on your opinion even if you think that based on what japan did it's like well they deserve the repercussions they were being imperialist in that part of the world etc like all that aside just when you look at the consequences that civilians had to face um it's hard to be a like fan of war um not that anybody is but you know what i mean so yeah, I think they definitely succeeded in what they were trying to do, which is just to tell the story of these children and remind people of what people went through. Um, and yeah, I did like it. I definitely don't need to watch it again anytime soon. Um, and for this studio, um, I don't want to say anything too controversial here, but just in my own personal opinion, Miyazaki's movies fall in a place kind of the way I feel about Wes Anderson, where like... I totally see what people love about them. They're just not really my thing because they're a little too far removed to, from reality normally and just like too fantastical in a very specific way that I have a hard time connecting with. So it was refreshing to see a movie from that studio, even though I know it's not Miyazaki, that I could definitely relate to because it was very serious and about real things that actually happened and it didn't get fantastical and wasn't kind of going into that world that a lot of people love it, it, um, so yeah, it was interesting to see something different from them. Yeah, and I fully recommend all of Isao Takahata's films. Like him and uh, Miyazaki were the two backbones mm. of Studio Ghibli, and Miyazaki's still around, thank God. Um, but his other big one um, that most recently is The Tale of Princess Kaguya, which is a very famous Japanese folklore, is also really fantastic. That and um, Palm Polko is probably his other really well-known one. I had, I had a couple of leftover questions just for the audience. Um, I think there's a scene with black rain from the bombings, and I was just curious as to what actually causes that. Um, and then my other one is there's a scene with a American fighter plane where they have to jump out of the way because it's like strafing a town uh, street with civilians in it. And um, I'm, I'm not like trying to say that American fighter pilots were like beyond that or anything like that. But I just like, I haven't ever seen that or heard about it. So I'm just curious if anybody knows if that ever actually happened. Cause it seemed kind of uncharacteristic, especially for the, the sort of different level of chivalry that the air, uh, that people were involved in the air war had um, in terms of, you know, like shooting a, a parachuting pilot whose plane had been shot and things like that. Like, I just know that in general, there were certain unspoken rules that people went by, although it differed from country to country. But yeah, I'm just curious to know if anybody knows of an incident or has any, you know, like a Japanese person remembering that or reporting an incident like that. So what is the metaphor of the fireflies? Is it the firebombs or is it her... Or is it like, what's the what's the thing there? I, I'm I love how I try and like close an episode, and then Liam's like, drop the bomb, kicking that shit back open. What? It was. I'm sorry. It's it was okay. like one more, like one more thing that I'm just like, wait, one more thing before we before we go. I mean, it is the title of the movie. It is the title. Of, I but, I feel like if we don't talk about it, somebody's going to be like, these guys don't know what the hell they're doing. They didn't even talk about the fireflies. I think the fireflies are supposed to represent Setsuko's understanding that her mother is gone, mm-hmm. that, you know, she has all this fear and anxiety. And so Seita brings in all the fireflies and they have this glorious moment of happiness. 
And then in the morning, you know, they're both so horrified to see all the dead fireflies. Why do fireflies have to die so soon? <laughs> Setsuko then takes them and buries them and shows that she understands death in a way that Seita didn't know. Because Seita really tries to keep from her the fact that her mom is dead and doesn't realize she knows that until that point. And then I believe he breaks down crying, realizing like, oh, all of my efforts to keep my sister innocent in all of this are you cannot keep your innocence in a war like that. I but think it's is a the message. It is an over like in that scene. Absolutely. But it's a motif that goes beyond that, like from the beginning to the end. There's fireflies all over that son of a bitch. So like, right. but they do seem to, that's sort of like where my question is, is like the, they seem in a lot of ways to mirror the firebombs dropping that, and, and I'm not sure entirely what that connection is trying, what connection they're trying to make there, or if that's just part of the motif or if that's how he's remembering i don't i don't even know what i'm saying right now but i'm saying something no but you're picking up on something that's definitely there um if there's a there's a little bit of trivia where if you take one of the original posters for the film which is like them in the grass with like fireflies all over the sky and you uh bring lighten the contrast a ton you can actually see, I don't think it's an outline of a plane, but the way the lights are shaped, you can actually see the impression of a B-29 in the sky. And apparently oh, some of those fireflies are actually fire bombs. Like the sky is mixed. So that metaphor you're talking about is actually quite literally depicted in the poster. So it's definitely there. Huh. Well, look at me go. It lightens their life, but it, it, you know, it's that duality of fire. Of it brings us life and safety and heat, and it, it brings destruction. So it's these it's this duality because Japanese folklore has a lot to do with duality, and that ties back into Shinto um, in regards to life and death and spirituality and all of that. And I think that's what the fireflies are. Is it is it's about the nature and that fireflies are so so fragile and fire in and of itself is also fragile well and she also she grabs one and smashes it first right right exactly exactly so there's this there's this understanding that they can bring something to you but you have to be careful with them because it can also lead to death on that happy note and that was the happiest way to end <laughs> that episode well we're uh, going way over time here, so um, thanks everyone for listening. Thank you guys for all your research and participation in this. Thanks, Mike Andrews, who, man, I got to like maybe 15% of the stuff that he wrote in with, so I feel terrible that I didn't um, get into most of his research, but it's hard to get into it. Check out our surplus ordinance post next week to find out all the details, all of which were very interesting. Definitely. Yeah. Say. And I'm going to, I, I made a change to this. So I'm going to start putting out the surplus ordinance just a couple of days after you're hearing this episode. So these come out on Fridays by like Sunday, I'll have that up. That way you can read about it and definitely get a lot more information on, um, especially on what Japan was doing at this point in the war, the conflicts between the government and the military um, and what kind of surrender they were going to agree 
was what they were really arguing a lot about here. So, and it'll t- it talks a little bit about propaganda, the civilian population. There's lots of interesting stuff in there. But um, Katie, you want to throw out our socials real quick? You can find us all over social media on Facebook at the Danger Close Pod group. On Twitter at DangerClosePod.com, on Instagram at DangerClosePod.com, and we have a great Reddit group, which is r slash DangerClosePod. And uh, next episode, we are doing our first um, audience poll chosen episode, which uh, traditionally or (laughs) normally we're going to do this every fifth episode. So we're running one episode late here just because we were still formatting the show. But from now on, uh, so episode six is going to be an audience poll and then we'll go 10, 15, 20, etc. Every fifth episode will be one that you guys pick. Um, Liam, what was the uh, winner of this poll? I believe the winner of this poll was Jojo Rabbit. And I cannot wait to talk about it with you guys. Taika Waititi, who directed it, is my favorite director and has been since Hunt for the Wilder People, maybe what we do in the shadows. I, I can't wait to talk about Scarlett Johansson with you fine folks. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We appreciate every time you do. Thanks, everyone. 